Please turn in your Bibles to Psalm 13. We're going to be reading about a subject that may seem in utter contradistinction to what we've just been singing. Uh, songs of joy, and we're going to be looking at despondency. And yet you'll find that the psalms of despondency that David writes have that same tension right within them. Uh, many times you find them being resolved in exuberance and joy as well. We're going to be looking at how it is that Christians can go from despondency to praise by the supernatural power of God's Spirit. Psalm 13. To the chief musician, a psalm of David. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long shall I take counsel in my soul, having sorrow in my heart daily? How long will my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and hear me, O Lord my God. Enlighten my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death, lest my enemies say I have prevailed against him, lest those who trouble me rejoice when I am moved. But I have trusted in your mercy. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. Amen. Father, we thank you for this word, and I pray that as we dig into it, that your spirit would open the eyes of our understanding to comprehend it, that you would open our hearts to receive it, and, Father, that our lives would be transformed by your word. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. You may be seated. Well, we're still in the series on David, and last week we left David at the end of 1 Samuel chapter 23, uh, probably feeling like he was sinking into the slough of despond, into the swamp of uh, despair and hopelessness, and it would be pretty hard to imagine things getting worse. There was one place where it does get worse later. It was uh, in the city of Ziph. Uh, when everything was taken away by the Philistines. But just think of what he has gone through to this point. He's lost his wife. He's lost his position. He's uh, just said goodbye to his best friend and will never see that friend again. His own countrymen from his own district have betrayed him. He was a man without a home and without a country. And even as the inspiration of this psalm comes into David's life, as they are fleeing, he is being hunted down like a dog. And it looks like he is almost ready uh, to be captured. Now, at the end of the psalm, we're going to be seeing that David is able to bring comfort to the 600 men who are going with him. And I want to look at why is it, how is it, that David, who is absolutely overwhelmed with his circumstances, can bring comfort into the lives of his other people. Leaders many times have to do this. Uh, but how is it that uh, David, uh, instead of going to despair, despite the fact that he is forsaken, he uh, really acts out of faith? This psalm tells us exactly how that can be, and we can do exactly the same thing. Because his experience has been the experience of countless people down through the centuries. I read about a German pastor by the name of Paul Gerhardt, uh, who was also uh, fleeing, uh, being hunted down by the uh, Catholic authorities, just like a dog during the 30 uh, years war in the 1600s. And he and his wife had been fleeing from place to place, and they were finally running out of places to run to. They didn't have any money. They didn't have anything to their name. 
And finally, his wife just broke down in tears and was expressing the utter despair of her heart. She just wanted to give up. And he was bringing her some comfort as the shepherd of the home uh, from the promises and the provisions that God has promised in the Scripture. And he was able to comfort her, but he went off into a solitary place and just sobbed his heart out before the Lord, a feeling like he could not be strong for people any longer. He says, Lord, I cannot go on uh, myself. But as he prayed to the Lord exactly the same way that David does in this psalm, He experienced the supernatural presence of God in his life, bringing him renewed hope, in fact, even instilling joy. It's a supernatural thing. We're not talking about psychology here today. We are talking about the reality of anchoring yourself in the presence of God Almighty and experiencing his grace in your life in a way that really you cannot explain away uh, just in, in human terms. And uh, 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 Gerhardt, Pastor Gerhardt, immediately got a pen and paper, and he started ministering to others by writing a hymn of uh, this, this experience that, that he went through. Just like David wrote this psalm that has ministered not just to the 600 men that he was with, but has ministered to so many other people as well. Gerhardt's hymn began, Give to the winds thy fears, hope and be undismayed. God hears thy sighs and counts thy tears. God shall lift up thy head. Through waves and clouds and storms, he gently clears the way. Wait thou his time, so shall the night soon end in joyous days. Now, brothers and sisters, I cannot guarantee that you're going to miraculously escape like David did or like Pastor Gerhard actually did. But I can guarantee you that if you will go to God, just like David did in this psalm, no matter how deep your despondency might be, God can renew your hope, He can sustain you, and He can enable you to profit, yes, even through your difficult circumstances. Now, the advice of this psalm may seem almost naive. It is so deceptively simple. But when you think about it, our whole Christian walk is deceptively simple, isn't it? The whole Christian walk is a walk of faith. Now, let me start by defining despondency. Despondency means the loss of courage or loss of confidence or loss of hope resulting in being disheartened or low-spirited. So it's the loss of courage, confidence, or hope resulting in being disheartened or low-spirited. Sort of like having the wind taken out of your sails, but it's really accompanied by that emotional low uh, that, uh, that you are going through. And many different causes for despondency. Your, yours might be totally different than David's. Uh, some causes are physiological, and by physiological I mean your body itself produces this. It may be hormonal changes or chemicals that you've ingested or sickness or something like that. So it can be physiological, it can be spiritual, uh, or it can be circumstantial. Let me give you an example of circumstantial um, uh, deep, uh, uh, despondency. You've probably had times where you have been so discouraged. You just feel like the whole world uh, is rotten. But from experience, you know this is probably because you haven't slept well for the whole last week. And you think, you know what, I just need to get a good night's rest. I better not make any decisions until I get a rest. And sure enough, after you've gotten a rest, your spirits are revived. I had a roommate in college, and I've never seen another guy like this, but he, he just was absolutely certain 
that once a month, once every 30 days, without fail, he would go through this period of utter despondency. And he said, man, maybe I'm a woman or something, but uh, he said, it's, it's just like a cycle that I go through. Who knows? I don't know what to think of that. But uh, there are other causes uh, for our uh, despondency. Medicine can sometimes make a person feel terribly, terribly down. Now, I'm not going to deal with the causes of despondency uh, this morning. Um, there is a book that I do recommend if you ha uh, have struggles with this. It's uh, by Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, and it's called Spiritual Depressions, Their Causes and Their Cures, or something like that. Excellent book. I highly recommend that you buy that. But whether you are able to get rid of the causes of your despondency or not, because in this, in this psalm and in 1 Samuel 23, David did not get rid of the causes of his, his despondency. So whether you're able to get rid of the causes of despondency or not, this psalm can help you through and during those times of despondency. Now, some of you, you just have personalities that never get down, and you're going to be tempted to just tune out and think, wow, this, this has nothing to do with me. Don't do that. Uh, you're supposed to be ministering God's word to one another, and this psalm will help you to be more realistic in the way in which you minister God's grace to those who are despondent. So let's dive into the passage. Uh, David starts this psalm tearfully asking God why he's allowing him to go through such anguish of soul. And he uses some interesting language. It's language that some counselors, perhaps some of your friends have even said, oh, no, 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 you cannot talk like that. Ignore them and listen to David, what he says. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long shall I take counsel in my soul, having sorrow in my heart daily? How long will my enemy be exalted over me? Four times David asks how long. He doesn't know how much longer he's going to be able to bear up under the pressure, and he sobs his heart out to God. In verse 1, he feels as if God has forgotten him and as if God is hiding his face from him. And I want to look at these uh, two verses from two perspectives, I want to look first of all at the appropriateness of these words because these words sometimes scare people off. Some people think, hey, you cannot talk to a sovereign God the way that David is talking to him here. And then secondly, I want to look at the comfort such words bring to those in despondency. Now, first of all, are these words even appropriate? Some people question it because in verse 1 he says, you know, uh, you know Lord, how long will you forget me forever? And people say, well, theologically, we know that God does not forget us. Uh, nobody could take us out of God's hand. Uh, he's omniscient. So I, I feel like I cannot actually make these my words and ask God, will you forget me forever? Because I know he won't forget me forever. Now, there's a sense in which that is true. From God's perspective, we are never forsaken. From God's perspective, we're never forgotten. <clears throat> we are, he, he doesn't forget anything, okay? He knows all things. But Scripture many times condescends to look at life from the perspective of appearances. When we go through trials, it seems as if God is not working on our behalf, right? It seems like it. And um, Scripture uses language like forsaking, departing, forgetting, 
turning away to describe such times. And I've put some extra scriptures that I'm not even going to look at in your outlines uh, that talk about that forsaking, that forgetting, the Lord's departing uh, from us. So you can study it on your own. But let me give you a couple that were right during this time. Psalm 22. David cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, from God's perspective, David is never forsaken. But from David's perspective, he can't see God, and the heavens seem like they're brass. It seems like his prayers aren't going anywhere. And so what he's concerned about is the loss of the comfort or the sense of God's presence. In Psalm 30, verse 7, he says, You hid your face, and I was troubled. And again, that's the subjective feelings that he's going through. It seems as if God is not working. And let me try to illustrate how this can be true. You've probably all experienced a time when you've had a relative or a friend who maybe they're mad at you or, or one reason or another, they could be in the same room with you and yet you feel distant from them. It's almost like there is this barrier uh, between the two of you. Now, David was never worried about spatial distance. It's this, it, it's this, uh, th- this sense that uh, his heart and the actions of God and the perceptions are not there of God's closeness in his life. And I think we've all experienced that where there's a distance even though people are spatially close to us. Third thing I want to point out is that this is God's inspired prayer book. He commands us to sing all 150 of those psalms or to just chant them or to say it uh, to the Lord. But here's the neat thing. God, by putting these into his book, into his scripture, inspiring them, is identifying with the difficulties we're going through. It indicates he understands our feelings. He wants us to express these feelings as our own when, when we're going through them, or at least, you know, you might not feel them when we sing this at the end of the psalm, but hey, you're part of the bride of Christ which is suffering around the world, and you can say it on behalf of the bride of Christ. So anyway, he's ministering to our emotions, not simply to our circumstances. So I would say... Obviously, there is a theological correctness in using these words, and we're commanded to do it anyway. But let's look next at the comfort of these words. One of the remarkable things about these psalms is there is no attempt to cover over the agony and the anguish that God's people go through. I remember when I was a a teenager that uh, I uh, I had a, a disconnect with the church of that time, they had ca- this campaign that was like the Pepsi campaign, even had the Pepsi logo and everything about Jesus. Try him, you'll like him. You know, something like that. Try it, you'll like it, Christianity. And over and over, people were saying, yeah, just believe in Jesus and all your problems will be fixed. And I was thinking, well, I'm a Christian and I got plenty of problems, you know. <laughs> this just, this, I don't connect with this. I had a hard time with it. And it really bothered me when people would say, Smile, Phil. You know, you need to show forth the wonder of God's grace in your life. And I'm thinking, is there not any time in the Scripture where we can be sad? Especially stuck in my craw, that, that just oft-repeated thing. Smile, God's love, God loves you. Now, I knew God loves me, but somehow it did not make me feel better to have that mantra thrown at me. But let me tell you, when I started reading the Psalms... I felt like God knows exactly what I am going through. He cares about me. He, he cares so much. He's put it right into his inspired book that I have what I can connect with to cry out to the Lord. 
He identifies with us. Now, just try an experiment. I want you to just try as hard as you can to imagine in your mind that you are Job from the Old Testament. Your house has burned down. Your money has been robbed from you. You've had all your flocks taken away from you. Your children have been all killed, and your wife now has gotten on your case. You feel in the pits. And there's two counselors, two friends who come to you. They're trying to bring some comfort. And let me preface this. Both of these counselors are saying biblically true things. It's not like one is giving theological heresy and the other is not. No, they're both bringing biblical uh, two things. But I want you to try to figure out which of these two would bring you more comfort. Counselor A says, I know you've lost your children, but time will heal this pain. Counselor B says, you must feel as if this pain will never end. I am so sorry. Counselor A says, there's a hidden blessing in this. Buck up. Look at the positive side. <laughs> Counselor B says, I'm sorry. This has had to happen to you, brother. Now, both of these guys are right. Uh, but Counselor B is entering into your pain. He understands what you're going through. So there's a relational comfort here. Let me give a, a few more contrasts. Counselor A says, God never gives more than we can handle. Counselor B says, this must seem like more than you can handle. Now, he's not denying the theological truth that God never gives you more than you can handle, but he's saying it must seem like it. It must seem like it to you. Counselor A says, try to be strong. Counselor B says, don't feel like you need to be strong for me. I know this is overwhelming, and I'm here for you. Counselor A says, you're holding up so well. And maybe thinks, see you later. <laughs> you're holding up so well. And the other one says, it's okay to cry. Counselor A says, this is God's will. These things happen for a reason. Romans 8.28 promises us that. Counselor B says, some things just don't make any sense, do they? I know that God has a purpose for this, but sometimes life doesn't make sense to me either. Counselor A says, I know how you feel. Counselor B says, I just don't know what to say, but let me give you a big hug. Counselor A says, let me know if I can do anything. Counselor B says, I'll call again tomorrow to see how I can help. Can you see there is a big difference between the two? Both of them are giving accurate statements, but Counselor B is entering into the pain of the other person. Both have an understanding of theology, but Counselor B is understanding the person's plight and his feelings. And the reason that these psalms have brought so much comfort and healing and encouragement to people down through the centuries is because the psalms of David are like Counselor B. That's the reason. They connect. They indicate to the believer that, the, that God really understands. And God, through these psalms, has entered into our feelings, enabling us to ha have a vehicle by which we can offer these feelings up to him. Now, God's the ultimate counselor, and if you want to be effective in your counseling, I would encourage you to take the, the, uh, you know, follow the lead uh, of David here, and don't feel like you always have to defend God or vindicate God or give pat answers, you know, when sometimes just your presence is all that matters. But this psalm is not just a, an encouragement to correct our counseling. It's something God wants us to offer back to him. He wants us to memorize the psalms, to use them. There is a power in the psalms uh, for, 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 for cleansing us. And so I want to go through this and show why this makes a difference. The first step that I see 
David taking is preaching to himself, talking to himself, counseling himself. Take a look at verse 2 again. It says right there in the middle, How long shall I take counsel in my soul? David talked to himself to keep himself from going into despair. Psalms 42 and 43 have this repeated phrase. Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you disquieted within me? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise him for the help of his countenance. Now, he probably didn't even feel like talking to God because he's so miserable. But he grabs himself by the scruff of the neck and he counsels himself. He says, self, do not give in to those feelings. Do not give in to despair. Do not walk away from God. He's counseling himself and, and refusing to give in. And too many people have missed this first step. <clears throat> and what's happened is they've allowed their despondency to get them into bitterness against God and uh, even to walk away from God. So the first step is not like, okay, this first step, okay, it doesn't understand why the pain is there. But it's saying, I'm going to cling to God. I don't care why the pain is here. I'm going to cling to him by faith. It will not let him go. Now, that doesn't mean he doesn't cry out to God in anguish. Point B says that David is quite honest with God about his feelings. Yes, he's clinging to God, but he's telling God, hey, I don't, I don't feel good about this at all. I don't like what's happening to me. He's not faking his feelings. He feels horrible, and he lets God know it. Now, I'd hasten to say that we're going to be seeing at the end of the psalm, he praises God. So this is not something that flows out of bitterness. It's not a bad kind of a grumbling or, or complaining. It does not have a resentful spirit. But he starts out where he is, admitting not everything is hunky-dory. And this is important. If David felt comfortable with the fact that he doesn't sense the presence of God, he feels like God has forgotten in a sense, if he felt comfortable with that, he would be working counterproductively to what God's purposes are. See, when God allows dryness into our lives, he's not wanting us to be comfortable with that dryness. He wants it to drive us to the waters of his grace. Uh, when he is... Um, um, giving us troubles is because he wants us to look to him to help. When he allows despondency, it's because he wants us to go to him for comfort. So the very expression of those feelings, I think, is totally compatible with faith. Now, sometimes Christians feel it's just wrong to feel the sense of distance and anguish. But think about it this way. I use the analogy of, um, of a relative or a friend who's in the same room with you, but you feel that distance. Now, common sense would tell you it's not good to feel comfortable with that distance. Hey, we're in the same room. That's good enough. No, you don't feel. You want there to be a closeness, uh, a, a relationship, not just a spatial closeness. And this is the way it was uh, with David. Uh, it, it, God does not want us to say, hey, I'm going to be a stoic. I'm going to be content with the way God, God's situation is. Okay, I, I like it that I feel distant from God. Of course not. You know, he wants us to be honest, to pour out our hearts to him and say, Lord, I want closeness with you. I am not content with anything that's going to be a barrier, barrier between you and me. Here's what the, the great Puritan writer Thomas Brooks once said. By God's withdrawing from his people, he prevents his people withdrawing from him. And so by an affliction, he prevents a sin. 
God therefore forsakes us that we may not forsake God. And so the purpose of God withdrawing the comfort of his presence, and he's still there, but the sense of his presence sometimes is so that it will stir up within us a desire to cling to him, to drive us closer to him. So be honest with the Lord and say, Lord, I don't like the way that things are appearing. I don't like the fact that I feel so distant from you. It's that kind of a prayer God honors. So express it to him, express it to him. The third thing that I see in the psalm is that David focused on God, not on his problems. Now, obviously, he didn't ignore his problems. We've already seen he's lifting up these problems that are causing such agony to him. But where is his focus? If his focus was exclusively on his problems, it would lead him to despair. But he is looking to the God who is greater than his problems. The historian Carolee Erickson tells of the grief of Maria Theresa. She was the empress of, of uh, Austria, and her husband had just recently very suddenly died, and it just impacted her horribly. She painted her rooms black, had her windows draped in black velvet, dressed in black, refused to allow any of her attending ladies to wear rouge even. Uh, they all had to dress in black, and the historian said this, The empress seemed to lose heart completely. Sitting alone in her darkened apartments, her hair shorn, her thoughts increasingly morbid, she ordered her own coffin prepared and placed beside her husband's and spent a large part of each afternoon in the vault, sitting beside Francis's coffin and the empty one, weeping. She wrote in her prayer book, Emperor Francis I, my husband, died on the evening of the 18th of August at half past nine o'clock. He lived 680 months, 2,958 weeks, 20,788 days, 496,992 hours. Our happy marriage last, lasted 29 years, 6 months and 6 days, 1,540 weeks, 10,781 days, 258,744 hours. Can you see the problem with what she is doing? She is so focused almost exclusively. She did pray, but it was the wrong kind of prayer, as we'll see in a moment. But she was focused so exclusively on her problems that she failed to see the God who intends to bless us through our problems. And while it's important, well, let me rephrase that. While it's impossible not to see our problems, to spend too much focus day in and day out on the problem is a great way to guarantee you're never going to get past your despondency. It's just going to guarantee it. Some of you focus on your problems too much. David doesn't do that. He allows the pain of the problem, which has been expressed, to drive his eyes to the Lord to resolve it. His focus is on God, not on the problem. And this is key. This is absolutely critical. Fourth step. Give reasons why God should deliver you from your affliction like David does in verses 3 through 6. Now, the reason I've even thrown this one in here is because I've known people, I've even known pastors who have gone through unbelievable health issues and attacks from Satan and all kinds of things, and they're just passive. They just sit like a stoic and say, I just need to have a good attitude and endure. And they never ask God to remove these things. They say, this is God's affliction on me. And I just don't think it's a right approach to life. We can never be passive about these things that um, are uh, afflicting us. L let me just outline some of David's reasons. David points, first of all, to God's covenant relationship with him. 
He uses the covenant name, Lord, all capital letters, that's Yahweh. And they really should be translating it Yahweh, but I don't know why they put Lord in there. And by doing that, he's claiming that God belongs to him. This is an exclusively covenantal name. It's only used in connection with his covenant people. So basically he is saying, Lord, you have covenanted to be my Lord, and I need you. I want you to be my Lord. Be sort of like a, a wife saying to her husband, you're my husband. Why don't you want to be with me? I love you. I need you in my life. This is sort of what David is doing with this covenant name. Lord, you belong to Israel and Israel belongs to you. That's what your whole name, Yahweh, means. He also appeals to God's kindness in verse 3. God says he's a God of compassion who hears his people's cries. And so David says, consider and hear me. God says he will provide for his people when they have need. So he prays for wisdom. Enlighten my eyes. God promised to protect his people. David says, lest I sleep the sleep of death. So he's appealing to God's kindness, his generous character. But here's the point. He prays that God would, uh, these things he's praying, is that God would give him the graces, the help needed for him to do the responsible thing. So he's not going to be passive. He's going to be taking action, which, of course, David does. Subpoint three, he appeals to God's reputation. Since all things ultimately need to reflect God's glory, I think this is a thing we ought to do in our prayers. He's, in effect, saying, Lord, what are the, the heathen going to be thinking if you allow me to be killed? Look at your promise that you had made. Lest the enemy say, I have prevailed against him. Lest those who trouble me rejoice when I am moved. Uh, now, that's just a tiny sampling of the ways in which he appeals to God. But don't be passive in prayer and don't be passive in action. Most of the requests are for resources so that he can be responsible in doing what he needs to do even when he didn't feel like acting. Okay, the fifth step is to thank God, praise Him, and sing to Him in faith. And you can see that in verses 5 through 6. And I'm going to actually deal in reverse uh, order and look at the submission of faith first. Nevertheless, uh, not my will, but yours be done. Have you ever prayed that? That was the prayer of Christ. That's a, that's a prayer of faith, an expression of faith, submission of faith. Here David says, But I have trusted in your mercy... My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. That's an expression of faith. David is saying, despite all appearances to the contrary, despite what my emotions feel, I know you're a good God. I know you will never forsake me. I know your mercies. I know your salvation. And I'm going to praise you by faith. That's what he's in effect saying. If our complaints do not end up in praise, we've got the wrong kind of complaint, and it's going to end up in bitterness. Paul tells us in Philippians 4 that we need to be offering up our prayers and supplications to God, but he says always, always, always do it with thanksgiving. You'll have to read it for yourself, Philippians 4. It needs to be in all things with thanksgiving. Every prayer needs to be with thanksgiving. Too many people's prayers actually make matters worse because it's this focus on the problem, 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 and they're just sinking deeper down into their despondency and ending up complaining with, against God in a grumbling way. It's with thanksgiving. That gives faith because we're looking at the, the, the greatness of God in, in, in our lives. Um, one of the reasons why David is able to offer up a complaint in the first half 
able to thank and praise God in the last half, I think, is the little word mercy in verse 5 and the word salvation. (coughs) He says, I have trusted in your mercy. Anybody who knows even a fraction of how hateful our sins are to God and how much we deserve to roast in in hell forever is going to have something to praise God for no matter what your circumstances are. We're just going to realize even in the midst of our persecution, God's mercies are rich in our lives. This was the perspective that Jeremiah had. Yes, he had lamentations. He had weeping over the things that were happening, but he gained perspective. He said, through the Lord's mercies, we are not consumed because his compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Now, I hope you guys understand the difference between justice, mercy, and grace. Justice is getting what you deserve. Grace is getting good things you do not deserve. And mercy is not getting bad things that you do deserve. Okay, so justice is getting what you deserve. Grace is getting good things you don't deserve. And mercy is, getting, is not getting bad things that you do deserve. David knew he deserved far, far worse than anything that he was receiving here in life. And I think that's the difference between, it gave him perspective. It's the difference between grumbling we sometimes do and the plea for help that David gave. God gets irritated with grumblers because grumblers think they deserve better. They think they really want justice. It's a bad thought, but they think they want justice. They do not complain with humility. They do not understand that even their greatest difficulties are a mercy. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 10 tells us, Let us not murmur, as some of them also murmured and were destroyed by the the destroyer. So next time you're tempted to really get despondent and down because you've lost an argument with your spouse or you've uh, lost money in the stock market or some friend has hurt you, put it into perspective by thanking God, saying, Lord, I am so grateful that this is all that I am going through today. I could be in hell. I'm so thankful for your mercy, so thankful for your salvation. The last point under Roman numeral 2, remember God's goodness in the past. Now, during times of tribulation, Satan wants you to focus only on the present tribulation. David refused to do that. He was remembering God's goodness in the past. Verse 6, I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. That's past tense. He's remembering the good times that he had had with God, and it helps him to focus on God's goodness. Now, he's not just remembering the goodness, he's singing about it. And why would he sing about it? Does that mean all of his problems have uh, vanished? Absolutely not. This is written at the end of 1 Samuel 23. He's still in deep trouble. He's still got all kinds of problems ahead of him, but he's realizing God's goodness, especially remembering from the past, in the midst of his trials, even when he cannot see God, because it just seems like God is not working. By faith, he knows God is working, but it feels like that's not the case. When I was a kid, I used to um, love catching and playing with and experimenting and studying insects, but also flowers. We had all kinds of flowers in uh, the capital city where I went to boarding school. And uh, there was one flower in particular. We would experiment with it with artificial light and watch this flower following it. It's just a remarkable flower. At nighttime, very, very quickly, it would close up. 
As soon as uh, the, the sun would come, it was, it, it was far more dramatic than most flowers. You could just watch it open up like this, and throughout the day, that flower would follow the sun from east to west. Even when it was thick clouds, it seemed to, quote-unquote, know where the sun was in the sky. It just followed the sun from east to west. That, I think, is an illustration of how God makes our hearts work when we are regenerate. He's put a homing device into our hearts so that no matter how thick the cloud cover that's covering God's face, we are longing for Him, we're searching for Him, and we're homing in on Him. If you're not homing in on God during your troubles, you need to ask God to give you that homing device because the regenerate have that. They are looking to the Lord and seeking after Him with all of their hearts. This is what Jesus said to His disciples. Everybody else had left. He says, are you going to leave too? And his disciples weren't denying that they had a lot of pain (laughs) following after Jesus, but they said, where shall we go? For you have the words of eternal life. Yes, there's problems, but they realized Jesus is the only one who could take them through those problems. And so remember God's blessings and his goodness in the past. Now, there's one last step that I see in this psalm, and that is ministering to others. And yes, I know... You maybe have questions about that, but you heard me right. It is ministering to others. Some people think, man, when you're going through the depths of despondency like David went through, you can't possibly expect me to believe that you're wanting them to start ministering. They need the ministry. I know you don't feel like ministering. You need to minister to others anyway. It is for your own good. Your counsel to each other is not done until you get each other to start ministering to others if you don't get past point one you've got a pagan council point one is identifying with people when they're going through problems if you don't get them to point three you're not bringing them to full and complete uh, healing and wholeness now hebrews 10 is a passage that shows how we're supposed to be ministering in each other's lives involved one anothering with each other but what are we supposed to be doing Hebrews 10.24 says, Let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works. Now you could say, look, you can't expect these guys to be engaging in love and good works. They've had their houses robbed. Many of them have had relatives killed. They've gone through incredible persecution, and yet he insists. No, you've got to keep stirring each other up to love and good works. What he's doing is he's taking them all the way through, points one, two, and three. That's the only way it's going to be complete. And David, when he got the psalm, didn't keep it to himself. He records it. Of course, God made him record it. That's what he does with prophets. But he records it. He ministers it to the 600 men that he is with. And in 1 Samuel 24, we're going to be seeing he continues to lead them, to shepherd them, to encourage their hearts. So don't think he is the only one who's gone through this despondency. All 600 of these guys have been going through the same things that David does, and they need his ministry. Listen to 2 Corinthians 1.4. It says, God comforts us in all of our tribulation so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble. He's comforting us so that we can minister. It's always going into ministry. He says, he comforts us in all our tribulation that we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. What this does is it takes the attention of these people away from their own problems onto the problems of others 
opens themselves up to be a conduit of God's grace. And you know what happens? When you become a conduit of God's grace, there is an overflow of God's grace into your life. You become ministered to as well. Let me illustrate. Babe Ruth had hit 714 home runs uh, during his uh, career, but he was playing incredibly poorly in one of the last games uh, of his uh, uh, Major League uh, Baseball career. It was the Braves, Braves versus the Reds in Cincinnati. He had fumbled a ball. He had thrown one poorly. In fact, uh, the guy who was writing up the story said he was responsible in just one inning alone for most of the five runs that Cincinnati scored. Uh, and so when he uh, went out and was walking toward the dugout, there was a crescendo of boos and yelling at him. And right at that moment, there was a little boy who jumped over the fence, went running with tears streaming down his face. Here's a sympathy. He just felt so bad for Babe Ruth. And he went up and <laughs> hugged Babe around the, around the knees, and Babe picked him up and looked like he was, you know, he was hugging him, was trying to comfort him. He finally put him down, patted him on the head, and was obviously trying to make the boy feel better. And the guy who wrote this, uh, this story up, he said, it was unbelievable. He said the entire, I mean, when do you ever get a stadium to be completely hushed? But he said it was almost as if the entire stadium was absolutely hushed because they were watching two heroes who were ministering to each other. So here, Babe, despite the fact that he has had one of the most miserable games in a long while, he has been booed. People are hating the fact that he's losing this game on them. And yet he has it in him to minister to the feelings of this little boy. And this little boy is a hero who's ministering to his hero. Okay, And in the process of doing that, both of them felt ministered to. And brothers and sisters, this is what God wants us to do with each other. Don't focus all of your efforts on surviving your despondency. Save some of your energies to minister to others. This is one of the things that enabled John Newton to so successfully minister in William Cowper's life. Uh, you may not know William Cowper. We sing some of his hymns. He was an amazing uh, hymn writer. But William Cowper was, was chronically afflicted with despondency. Now, most of the biographers don't deal with this. Most of the biographers say Newton's counseling was phenomenal. He brought so many words of encouragement that helped William Cowper continue on. And that's true. His words were wonderful. But part of Newton's success with Cowper came from the fact that he refused to let Cowper get into a hole and get away from everybody and feel sorry for himself. He said, no, you are going to minister. And he had a minister by writing hymns, and he had a minister by going to people who were in a far worse condition than he was, the poorest of the poor in the city where Newton was living, uh, the lace makers. Uh, and as Cowper prayed for these people, ministered God's word to these people, cried with these people, he felt God's grace that was ministering to others have an overflow in his own life. I don't know why it works, but it does. We need to get to all three points that are in the psalm. Now, even though you may not be despondent this morning, I encourage you to take some of the melancholy psalms, memorize them so that when you come to tough times like David did, with very little effort, you can sing them or say them 
uh, to the Lord as if they are your own. And what you'll do is you'll find the comfort of identification. You're going to find the, the release of being with an inspired psalm. So God's not disapproving. Be able to utter the feelings that are in your heart to the Lord. There's a release there. You're going to find hope rising within you. And most importantly, you're going to be brought to a deeper trust in God and an ability to praise Him in the midst of difficulty. Brothers and sisters, do not use humanistic methodologies for dealing with your despondency. Find the supernatural presence of Almighty God with you, just as David did, by following the advice of this psalm. Amen. Father, we thank you for this, your word. We are so grateful, so grateful that you have identified with us and that you sent your Son to even experience the agonies, the despondencies, the tears that we go through. We are so grateful, Father, that you have stepped into our lives and that you enable us to offer up the heartache that uh, we sometimes experience and to find the release and the presence of your Holy Spirit uh, coming into us and giving us that joy indescribable and full of glory that we cannot explain in terms of the, 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 the circumstances that we have. But I pray that for each one here. Father, may your grace sustain each one here, even as you sustained David in 1 Samuel 23 and 24. And to you be all the honor and the glory and the praise. In Christ's name we ask this. Amen.